This podcast is produced by Secure World Foundation, an endowed private operating foundation that promotes cooperative solutions for space sustainability and the peaceful uses of outer space. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. For more information, please visit swfound.org. This is a particularly um, timely uh, event for us. Um, Secure World Foundation is involved in um, promoting the sustainable use of outer space, um, and part of their topic is dealing with uh, sustainable use of outer space. Um, we also have, as, as part of our uh, outreach, uh, is an education component, um, which uh, is, uh, seems to be always under development, but uh, doing some interesting things. And, um, this year, um, the three students came to Victoria and Ben Basley Walker uh, here in the Washington office and said, gee, we're thinking about doing these things and wondered if uh, we could have some sponsorship and interaction with, um, with Secure World Foundation. And of course, uh, uh, they said yes, and uh, the result is uh, what you're hearing. Uh, today, ultimately, um, it's this is a kind of thing that we would like to do more of, as uh, we have time and, and uh, resources to do it. Um, and the other, the other aspect of this event, um, which I'm very pleased with, is actually uh, taking a close look at the emerging space states. Uh, it's another part of our program to work with emerging space states in uh, their policy development, legal development, and so forth. And um, so I'm, again, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from them uh, for this. And uh, with that, I will um, uh, pass it back to Victoria, who will introduce our speakers. Right? Sure. Yes. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Um, you should all have gotten the copy of the bios when you checked in, so I won't repeat myself in terms of what you can read easily, but I think I'll start off. But Lada, um, Delgado, Dan Hendrickson, and Megan Ansel. I'm not sure who's speaking first. You got the I am. All right. <laughs> Lada, you have the floor. Yes. And so, do you have the clicker, or do you need um, that? Megan is just designated clicker. Excellent. <laughs> so thanks again for um, all of you for being here. We're very excited about this event. And um, first off, we'd like to just express our deep gratitude to Secure World Foundation, not only for hosting this event, but for um, just engaging in this conversation with us, to Ben and um, Victoria in particular. They made this process a very collaborative one from the beginning, so we're very um, grateful about that. Um, uh, Ray kind of already told you the story of how we came um, to be involved with Secure World Foundation to do this, but um, just to add on to that, we, we had to complete, um, as part of our requirements for a master's degree in international science and technology policy at George Washington University, we had to complete a capstone investigation, and we were very much encouraged to find a sponsor. And so we were very lucky to find um, that the Secure World Foundation wanted to, um, you know, to participate with us in this, and so it was kind of a happy marriage from the start. Um, uh, that being said, I do want to tell you that a longer version of the document that will be made available today um, uh, is going to be posted on the Elliott School website at some point soon. And so if you're really interested in this, there's like a 40-page version that you are very much welcome to read. And actually, the document itself is on the Secure World's website as of today, one hopes. So <laughs> you'll have many opportunities to check it out if you're interested. Yes. 
Um, and an, another disclaimer is just to repeat that the opinions and the conclusions that we present here today are ours only and do not represent those of our current employers. Um, so I'm going to give just a very brief introduction. Um, Victoria and, and Ray have kind of um, hinted at what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk to you a, a little bit more about how we developed our question and then we will each be taking turns and kind of moving around to talk about the different sections of the paper. And then hopefully we'll be more than happy to answer your questions. Um, so first, moving on to our question. Um, you all probably understand why we linked the issues of emerging spacefaring nations and space sustainability. But um, I think one of the very basic assumptions that we make is that we are talking about a changed context in space. The national um, security space community has described it as congested, contested, and competitive, the three Cs that we've heard so much about. The truth is that the, the advent of emerging space variation creates, certainly creates a lot of opportunities, but it also creates new risks and, and potential um, security concerns because um, these emerging actors may not know or choose to abide by some of the implicit or explicit rules that the other established space nations have kind of developed over the years. Um, and so it is in this context that the concept of sustainability first comes around. Um, we saw it mentioned at, in the 2010 National Space Policy. We say um, the UN has developed a working group and it's looking at this issue from a long-term perspective. And so this issue has kind of um, taken flight. Um, and so the idea is that, as Victoria was talking about, the concept um, includes an understanding of how the physical dimensions of the space environment just create conditions of interdependence. It doesn't matter if you just got to space today, or if, you've, if you have been there for the last 20, 30, 40 years, you are just as vulnerable to the kind of activities that space sustainability is trying to address. And so in that sense, we feel that you do need to engage all international partners, not just um, the established and the quote-unquote more important or bigger players, but everybody. It's, not, it's more than just saying cooperation would be a good to have, it's a must-have, because otherwise, whatever understandings and shared assumptions these actors have, if the emerging actors don't participate in that, it's, it, the effort will kind of be moot. Um, and so with these understandings in mind, we wanted to look at the experience of some of these emerging space actors more carefully. And um, the countries we, we looked at in the three regions, if do not, um, in each of them, you have one country that has been doing space for a, long, for a longer period, and then a relative newcomer. And we did that because we wanted to see how comparing and contrasting their experiences, their goals, and their interests, we could learn um, different um, implications or kind of understand better the trends of the region as a whole. Also, if you'll note, those countries, except for India, which partly because of the work uh, of the work of Secure World Foundation, we know a little bit more of their policies. Um, the rest of the country, we don't know that much about in terms of their space programs. Um, so that kind of didactic experience is, the, is part of it too. And so um, in looking at these countries, uh, we not only wanted to look at their space activities in isolation, we wanted to put them in context um, in terms of larger national activities and goals, but also in terms of the region and how that could impact space sustainability. Um, we hoped that uh, we were going to be able to identify opportunities and potential challenges as to what you know, the lessons of their experience could give us um, with respect to space sustainability um, activities. 
Um, and so with that in mind, uh, we'll each talk about our specific regions and kind of the regional trends that we drew from our analysis. Then we will take a look at um, the European Union's proposed draft code of conduct for outer space activities. We used it as a case study to kind of see how our um, conclusions would apply to this existing mechanism. And then um, we will also just consider the question of what this has to do with the United States and what role the United States has played in this kind of activities. And then finally, you'll come back to me and, and we'll give you our final conclusions. So with that, um, Dan, we'll hear from um, who's going to talk to us about the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you, Laura. So looking at the Asia-Pacific region, we look specifically at India and Malaysia, who at face value seem like very two very different space, uh, space powers. India, of course, is a very developed power, uh, and Malaysia is a, a nascent newcomer to the, to the field. But despite their differences, we found that there's a common thread in the founding of their two civil agencies. Particularly, they're both interested in national development and using space capabilities to promote national development. How they define that national development, though, is very different. In the case of India, we found that they founded their, their agency with the intent of helping the poorest of the poor, helping the rural communities, and sort of raising their developed country status. And so they invested a great deal in remote sensing. They looked at telecommunications to reach uh, some of their more outlying areas in the country. And they generally reached out for rural purposes using space capabilities. Today, though, we see that they're sort of transitioning away from those uh, aggregarian reasons for entering into space and for supporting their poorer population. Today, we see that they're interested in, in more of space capabilities for the purposes of soft power. And we'll see that in one element we have the, the rhetoric and the interest in human spaceflight. We'll see where that goes. But on the other side, we've seen very concrete advancement through things like their lunar exploration program, where they've actually sent a probe to the moon. Additionally, from the standpoint of Malaysia, they're also interested in national development, but for very different interpretation of what that means. For them, they're interested in developing knowledge economy by 2020, which was a goal outlined by their prime minister uh, just a few years ago. And they see space capabilities as a way of inspiring their economy to reach new high technology platitudes. As a result, you have sort of a, a very different uh, take on national development as your motivation, but nonetheless that is their, their core interest. Additionally, we found similarities in how they acquired their space technologies and how they advanced their programs. From the standpoint of advancing their programs, they were very much interested in transferring technology. So in the case of India, they did that during the Cold War. They did that with the United States and the Soviet Union. But Malaysia, in a post-Cold World, Cold War world, is interested in doing microsatellite development and using entities like Surrey Space Limited and ATSB from South Korea to aid in that. Also, in looking in similarities these two countries to help define trends in this region, we found that there is sort of a common challenge in determining what the self-identity of the region is. And what I mean by that is there's two very different cooperative organizations working in Asia. There's 
the Asia Pacific Regional Space Agency Forum, which is all-inclusive. It allows non-governmental members, it allows people not even from the Asia Pacific to be a member. And then on the other side of that coin, you have APSCO, or the Asia Pacific Space Cooperate, Cooperation Organization, which of course is led by China. It's a closed organization, and it's not really interested in having membership from those that aren't in the Asia Pacific region. And so as we look at space sustainability issues, we have to ask which of these organizations do you go to, and do you work with both of them? Do you work with just one? I think that's really a good question that the international community would have to ask itself as it brings these sort of questions of space sustainability to the emerging world. For the Indians, they're sort of, in some respects, maybe asking themselves where their logical leadership role in space cooperation lies if these two organizations exist. On the one hand, you have APR-SAF, which is of course led by the Japanese, and then you have ASCO led by the Chinese. Malaysia, in this context, is also not really formally picked aside. They participate in APR-SAF, but so does the United States, and so does the United Nations. They also participated in the signing ceremony, at least as an observer, for ABSCO, but they were not a member. And so there's a distinct question of, essentially, who's aligning with the Chinese and who's not aligning with the Chinese. And there's serious implications, obviously, to what that means for space sustainability then, as the Chinese, of course, have their own idea of what space sustainability means. Thank you. Okay. Um, I looked at the Africa region, in particular the space programs of Nigeria and South Africa. And through my analysis, um, one thing was very clear. Um, South Africa and Nigeria have very similar near-term priorities and, and long-term goals. Um, in the near term, they both want to use space technologies and space applications to better address socioeconomic uh, development needs in their country. So for example, both of their first satellites were remote sensing satellites, and they focused on one area of agriculture, for example, um, better crop monitoring to uh, enable better crop yields uh, to improve food security. Um, in terms of the long term, they both have the strategic goal of establishing indigenous spacecraft manufacturing and launch capabilities. Um, in order to gain a self-reliance in using space for national development needs. And they both also have the goal of being regional leaders in science and technology um, in Africa. Where the two countries differ, however, is in their development paths, so how they are executing their space programs in order to achieve these near and long-term goals. Uh, so starting with Nigeria, um, Nigeria has acquired all its satellites through contracts with private companies. Um, and these, these contracts have included not just the building of a satellite and its launch, but also training programs for Nigerian scientists and engineers and technicians so that they can learn how to um, design, build, and operate satellites themselves. Um, a good example, last week, NigeriaSat-2 was launched. Uh, it was a follow-on to NigeriaSat-1. Both of them were remote sensing satellites um, built by Surrey Satellites, and these include training for Nigerian, um, Nigerian engineers and scientists. And this kind of approach of partnering with established space actors in order to um, acquire hardware as well as training is becoming increasingly common, I think, in the, in the emerging space nation um, arena. Now, in contrast to that, South Africa has taken a very different approach to um, acquiring its space hardware. It has never bought a satellite from a foreign company um, that sets it apart from other African countries. 
it's built up its space technologies sort of um, internally by using uh, natural, uh, national resources and talent in order to incrementally build up um, space manufacturing capabilities. So its first microsatellite um, was Sunsat. It was actually built by um, a group of students and faculty at a university. And then those students and faculty that helped build that satellite created a spin-off company um, called Sunspace. And that company was actually the prime contractor for the first government satellite that um, South Africa launched in 2005. Um, so it's a very different approach from Nigeria. So what do these similarities and differences mean for the region? Um, in one respect, you could infer that it means that it might weaken regional cooperation and coordination of space programs. Um, they both have strategic goals of being leaders, and Nigeria is looking at foreign companies to acquire its space hardware. And you could look at that and say, well, maybe that's going to weaken regional coordination and cooperation in the future. Um, but I think there's another aspect that feeds into this that would overcome that and help promote space uh, coordination and cooperation in their space programs. And that's the shared challenges that, that African nations face that span um, political and environmental and, and economic areas. Um, so before going into really the shared challenges, um, I'll talk a little bit about the two very prominent coordination mechanisms that exist right now in Africa. Um, and they're important because they're, they're two purely intra-African um, coordination mechanisms. So they were established by Africans and they're being executed by Africans with, with little or no um, foreign support. Um, so the first one is the African Resources and Environmental Management Satellite Constellation, uh, or ARMC for short. Um, it's an uh, agreement between Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, and Kenya and Algeria to build, they're each going to build a microsatellite for remote sensing and also ground stations, and it's going to be a coherent architecture, so they're all going to be interoperable, and also they're going to be built to address the specific needs of Africa while also building up um, indigenous capabilities in the region. Um, the agreement was only signed in 2009, so hardware hasn't been developed yet. But I think they've established a very important um, milestone, which is bringing together the African nations that are spending the most on space and um, having them agree on, on a project. The other uh, coordination mechanism in space in Africa is, is Af the African Leadership Conference on Space Science and Technology for Sustainable Development, or ALC for short. Um, and ALC is it's a forum, it's a regional forum in Africa for African decision makers and space professionals to come together and talk about how space can be used for sustainable development in Africa. Um, and so it's non-technical, very high-level conversations, um, but it's driven by Africans and it's bringing together that community. Um, I think in a, in, they've met three times, so it seems to be um, moving along pretty well. So these two initiatives, I think, are going to be very important to watch because Although they're still in their early phases and they have a lot of hurdles to overcome, um, I think they're going to be their success is going to be very important for the future of cooperation in space in the Africa region. Um, so now tying this back to the shared challenges um, that Africa faces and how this kind of promotes uh, coordination, cooperation, and space activities in the region, um, I'll give two examples. Um, the first one is that African regions, especially Nigeria and South Africa. They both um, have to deal with very harsh climates. Um, they're very prone to natural disasters, and they have large populations that are spread over vast territories. And so you can see how remote sensing satellites are a very valuable tool for them to address those shared challenges. And you can see how that has motivated the ARMC and their, their coordination of, of remote sensing microsatellites. Um, another example of a shared challenge is negative public sentiment towards spending 
very scarce resources on the space program because most, um, the vast majority of everyday Africans and a lot of their leadership um, see space as, as a waste of money or another you know, corrupt government program um, because they don't understand how to connect space applications to their everyday lives. And so you can see how the ALC will be very important for that because you're educating African leaders and you're also tying space to sustainable development in Africa and how to improve the lives of everyday people in the region. Um, so that's all. Yeah. And also facing many of the same challenges is the South American region. In terms of similarities, um, they have very similar approaches to international cooperation. And I think that's partly because um, there is an interest to build up indigenous capability, but they also see space as an important tool to tie into their foreign policies. You see, for example, in Venezuela that space has been closely tied to the Bolivarian Socialist Revolution um, and uh, these goals of regional integration. So um, the idea there is to use space as kind of another platform for the Venezuelan leadership to kind of espouse its ideals. In Brazil, um, this is a similar case in that space is used to um, address two sets of goals. There's national goals, of course, that's that can help explain why they're focused on remote sensing because there's very definite needs that they need to address in this you know, very resource-rich and very big country. Um, but on the other hand, you see that the other part of the program, um, they have these um, very ambitious goals to develop indigenous launch capability. And that is tied to an understanding of how um, space is, can be a power projection tool. They see the example of other countries that have developed um, launch infrastructure, and they want that as one of as yet another symbol, as they see it, to demonstrate that they are not only a regional power but a, but a global power. Um, and and through cooperation, they want to build up this um, indigenous capability. They also emphasize south 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 to south cooperation. Excuse me. So cooperation among developing countries for both countries. For example, um, China is one probably the the most important partner um, in space. Um, in terms of the differences, though, there's, there are very stark differences in scope. Brazil has been doing space since 1965, so since the 1960s. And so it's been around for, their program has been around for um, a lot longer, while Venezuela just started um, engaging in space in 1999. So they've only had this one successful program with China so far. Um, but they have ambitious goals to continue on to build up remote sensing capabilities and to start building up their own satellites. Um, but you see how they, how they move apart again because of the end goals of these programs. Venezuela, again, consistent with its foreign policies, sees space as a tool not only to address national goals, um, there's isolated communities within Venezuela that they need to help connect. Um, there's very definite needs um, in this developing country, but they're also using it, space as a tool to advance the regional integration. So for example, the Simon Bolivar telecommunication satellite, they've made a lot of um, statements about how it's going to be used by a bunch of other countries in the South American region and how it's really not just for Venezuelans, it's really for the whole continent of South America. Um, and then on the other hand, you see that Brazil has pursued a more diverse um, portfolio in terms of international cooperation because, again, because it's interested in, in power projection, it wants to be a global player, not just a South American player. And so it reaches out to, to other countries, to Russia, for example, to other countries around the world, France. Um, uh, another difference that I put up there is the space on whose turf, and this is just an interesting um, contrast. 
Venezuela is very much convinced that uh, space is mostly a government activity, and you see that reflected in their attitudes to other issues. On the other hand, Brazil is, ve is very interested in commercialization and kind of um, getting some return on their investment. Now, they, they share um, a number of common challenges, and one is the geographic setting, and it brings us back again to explain why remote sensing is such a priority for these two, two countries. Why, you know, again, Venezuela just starting out in space, the Saturn project it wants to get involved in is remote sensing. And of course, Brazil, the satellites that it developed indigenously back in the 90s were remote sensing satellites. Its most successful program with China, the China-Brazil Earth Resources Satellite System, is also remote sensing. Um, and, and, I, and it is because, you know, um, these large countries, they must, they must manage vast territories, they're also developing countries, and so the ability to observe, protect, and manage these environments really serves economic, social, and political goals. Um, and so when you begin understanding this, you see that a SpaceX success is successful to the extent that it can be tied to very definite and concrete goals. Um, because of the economic challenges and the fiscal constraint that these countries share, it's very hard to justify investments that are quote-unquote impractical. So that's one of the challenges that Brazil is facing because Brazil has a very ambitious space program, but it finds itself very hardly put to justify investments that perhaps make sense from a strategic um, point of view in terms of how that program needs to grow, but they're not, the, the connection is not easily made to the public or to um, some members of the political parties as to why investing money in this um, is, is important, even though it doesn't tie directly um, in their eyes to the development efforts. And so there's sizable funding constraints and this issue with um, sustaining public support, I think speaks to a shared, um, a shared challenge um, also that we saw with the case in Africa, is that the future stability and growth of these programs I think is really in question. I think um, if you know, these programs are under constant threat of their survival and their growth, I think it's very likely that unless there's concerted efforts to kind of make that link more evident between the public services that the public enjoys and the investments in space, um, space activities in the region could really remain um, in this niche pockets of activity. But South America could perhaps not become another important space region of the world. Um, so I think understanding all of these challenges is why um, under the auspices of the United Nations, the Space Conference of the Americas was created. Um, and it's one of these regional coordination mechanisms. And it has proven very positive to kind of link up these communities um, among the different countries in Latin America to get them to talk about space. It has also proven very useful for wherever um, the meeting is being hosted. That has helped spur um, more interest in space in that specific host country. Um, and it has given voice to some stakeholders who think that um, Latin America should have an ESA-like agency, um, a, a continent-wide um, space agency to kind of um, coordinate those, those space activities. Um, but that has been met with varying levels of support. You see some actors, for, for example, Venezuela, again, consistent with its policies, is very much in favor of it. But then you see actors like Brazil who don't understand why you need a, a similar agency to what other bodies in the international arena already do. Um, and they are a lot more skeptical. I think it also has to do with, you know, where is the money going to come from and how is that risk going to be balanced 
Um, but it, I think it is indicative at this point that the more advanced countries in space in the region, which are Brazil and Argentina, are both very skeptical of the venture and not highly supportive of the idea of having this kind of regional space agency. So on that point, um, you know, I think that without the backing of the more advanced countries in the region, that effort is not going to go um, much further. Um, I think the continued development of the individual space programs is a prerequisite. Um, they need to be on more sure ground before a regional kind of coordination mechanism um, is able to, to support itself. And so next up, um, now that we've done with the regional analysis, uh, Dan is going to talk to us about the case study. So we wanted to take the backgrounds and the analysis that we just conducted and apply that to some kind of test bed, sort of like take what we just did and say, well, what does it really mean? Like, how can we apply this in any useful manner? And so we felt that the EU draft code of conduct for outer space activities would be a good test bed to sort of test some of our ideas and to sort of further explore them. Um, it's important to note that the three of us don't necessarily think the EU code of conduct is the, uh, the best possible way necessarily for space sustainability. We're not necessarily endorsing it. Uh, but because it's a vehicle for dialogue in the international community, we felt it would be an appropriate mechanism to apply our thoughts against. I won't necessarily go into covering the code because I'm sure all of you are pretty well aware of what's in that code, but just highlight a few points that are particularly relevant to our countries that we just examined. Um, of course, the EU Code of Conduct is, um, in this, the spirit, is meant to strengthen space security and space sustainability. And it's supposed to outline acceptable behavior in space. Um, although it does that, at the same time, there are no verification methods and there are no enforcement mechanisms. So there's not really a, a, any binding teeth to it. Um, at the same time, there are mechanisms that are planned in the EU Code for consultation among those states that might have some sort of conflict or issue that uh, they have one, with one another. So looking at what these countries and how they sort of fit into this EU code, um, we sort of came across a general theme as we did our analysis, and that was that there's sort of a general agreement across these most of these emerging space actors that they tend to subscribe to most of the general principles that are in the code, but not necessarily the code itself. So they certainly might be interested in mitigating space debris, they might be interested in transparency, uh, confidence building measures, but they're not necessarily ready to sign on to the EU code. Looking at the individual countries themselves, particularly India, uh, was an interesting case because they voiced uh, some con concern that they felt sort of imposed upon by the EU code, which is sort of a, an interesting and um, a little bit puzzling view because the EU code is sort of in a stage right now where it's being um, put in a forum globally and they're, they're soliciting opinions worldwide and it's not that they're necessarily only listening to Western countries or to established space actors. Um, nevertheless, those uh, in the Indian government, although they haven't made necessarily a policy statement on this, the Indian government hasn't, there's certainly been enough rhetoric from certain Indian, Indian individuals to suggest that there hasn't been certain level buy-in. And the question then is whether or not that is uh, the EU code's fault. Um, was that a process issue with them? Or is that an issue that with the Indians' worldview? Um, could this be perhaps some sort of a leftover redux of um, 
them not being invited to the nuclear club um, many years ago and whether or not they're still feeling that and looking that th at this as sort of a similar situation. Nevertheless, they still have expressed some interest in adhering to principles of the code. Um, after the Chinese ASAT test, shortly thereafter, they pledged to build their own ASAT, and yet, at, despite that, they pledged to not create space debris to the same level the Chinese did through a test. In fact, they said that they would only simulate tests with an ASAT for fear of creating space debris. So there's definitely interest in the Indians um, on, on their part and interest in space, space sustainability issues, but is that because that would be a foil to the Chinese, or is it because they're definitely committed to space sustainability that may be uh, left open to interpretation? When we look at other countries in the emerging space field, we find that several have made absolutely no statement at all on the EU code, particularly Nigeria, South Africa, and Malaysia. But that's not to say that they're against space sustainability issues or that they have any issue with the code necessarily, but that they may be more interested in, as we were just mentioning earlier, focusing on building up their own programs, that maybe their budgets are so tight right now that they can't really afford to spend much time on these issues. Nevertheless, they're definitely engaged in the UN Working Group on Space Sustainability Issues, and they're present at these international fora, so it's not that they're unaware. They're certainly aware of these issues and are paying attention. And then on another end of the spectrum, we have Brazil and Venezuela, who have somewhat of an open opposition to the code in its present form, uh, but not necessarily because of the principles that are in the code, but rather that it was a, that they have opposition to the notion that this is a non-binding agreement, and that in fact there are no verification or enforcement mechanisms. And so their view on this is that the EU code would be uh, appropriate if it were the first step to a treaty being established. So we see that there's an encouraging spirit um, from these emerging space actors that they're interested perhaps in space sustainability issues, but perhaps not in name of the actual EU code, and they're not necessarily prepared to sign on to that. Okay, I'm going to be talking about um, the next part of our paper, which looked at the United States and emerging spacefaring nations in the context of space sustainability. Uh, so first of all, we noticed in our research a growing trend in technology transfer programs um, to aid the development of emerging space nations. So we saw companies like uh, companies from China, from the UK, um, and even from um, South Korea that were actively engaging in partnerships that were specifically designed to transfer technology to emerging space nations. And you know these activities have, have existed in some form or another since the beginning of, of the space age, but there's a sort of distinct form of cooperation that's becoming a lot more common um, over recent decades. And these are sort of all-inclusive packages that you know, deliver a, a complete satellite, um, includes launch, but most importantly includes these training programs for local engineers and technicians and scientists so that they can learn themselves how, how to design, build, and operate a satellite. Um, the other thing we notice is that the U.S. Um, is limiting its bilateral partnerships with emerging space stations because of technology transfer concerns. Um, so they were, you know, relatively speaking, absent from these activities. And you can, you can trace reasoning to that to, um, of course, our restrictive export control policies um, and other national security concerns. Uh, but the reason why this is important is because uh, the United States is missing this key opportunity to promote space sustainability norms in a manner that's consistent with its policies um, and its interests. Um, and that's because these, the proliferation of space capabilities um, over the past couple of decades means that these emerging actors 
have a variety of choices when choosing who to partner with to advance their, their space programs. Um, so while we saw increasing participation by countries like China, we saw a comparatively smaller role by, by the United States. Um, and this is important because these technology transfer programs now aren't just moving hardware across, um, across borders, they're, they're exporting many, like mature manufacturing designs, um, operational best practices, and standards. Um, that is really the first time that these countries are being introduced to them, and that's how they're learning. Um, so if the US really wants to ensure that these space actors are going to behave responsibly in space, then they're going to have to learn how to um, work more directly with them as they learn how to operate in space. And so now um, we're going to bring all of this together and I'm going to give you the final conclusions of our paper. The first is going back to um, the, the kind of the main, the main thrust of our paper is that um, space sustainability should be addressed on an international level. Um, we think that this requires a better understanding of the rationale and the development paths of all space actors, in particular emerging ones, who may have different, completely different routes from what we think are um, the traditional, you know, the U.S., the Russian, the Russian experience. Um, uh, this paper has shown that there are important opportunities and challenges that exist um, when considering these issues. Um, in terms of important similarities, um, I th we think we found uh, very striking um, their shared interest in remote sensing is something that we saw consistently in the three regions, and um, we think that that presents an opportunity for cooperation. And just again, as Megan was explaining, to start engaging more directly with these uh, with, with these actors and kind of exposing them to the the best practices. Um, also, this uh, their interest in remote sensing could speak um, to the interest of these countries um, in space sustainability because they understand the cost of launching these satellites. They understand how important these systems are to their economic and social development. And, and so therefore, they understand that it would be a very serious setback if as a result of a collision or of irresponsible behavior in space they were to lose these systems. Um, also, the reliance on international partnerships is interesting. Again, it, it certainly creates risks countries have a lot more options of who they want to excuse me, cooperate with when they're thinking about building up their space programs. Um, because the truth is, the, the, the environment now is a lot more fluid, a lot more dynamic. Uh, whatever happens in space from one, one region in the world is really the result of interactions that happen all over the world. It, uh, activities are not happening in isolation. But we think that this presents an opportunity, again, um, because as, as Megan already explained, um, this, this allows for direct engagement and kind of a co-learning of what um, these practices, standards, and attitudes to what space sustainability could be. Um, then again, I think uh, we highlighted the importance of understanding these common challenges. Um, the fact that many of these countries have issues regarding public awareness and long-term political support um, we need to understand that, and the international community needs to understand that when thinking about space sustainability, because these issues could be um, so so um, prevalent that these programs are, could be continually vulnerable to funding cutbacks or cancellations, um, and you know this is this is a a, threat, a constant threat that they are constantly thinking of, and so it's something that we certainly need to be more aware of. On the other hand, um, these issues could drive compliance and space sustainability issues. Um, in terms of the differences, again, we, we feel it's important to understand those motivating rationales and the different technical capabilities because um, better understanding their priorities could help 
um, the international community figure out what are those um, first issues that this, interest, this country would be more interested in, and also the degree of their involvement. Um, I don't, we don't think that every country will be as involved in every single issue of space sustainability, but it will be a result of um, how much they're able to put in and, and you know, how invested they are in these issues. Um, and then finally, we think uh, the regional dynamics will, uh, will be very crucial in how uh, space sustainability is approached. On the one hand, we saw these external dynamics, again, political and economic and social, social issues that are very much present in the experience of these countries, but from the outside, they may not be as prevalent. And so we do need to understand that these play a part when it comes to these kind of um, discussions. On the other hand, um, the regional organizations, as we discussed earlier, could provide a platform to kind of start engaging with these actors in a more organized manner. And so in sum, we hope that um, we've, we've shown that the space experience of other countries paints a rather complex picture that requires a better understanding of national and regional dynamics, um, and that that could very well determine the success of efforts to ensure the continued and expanded use of this limited resource on which more and more countries are becoming increasingly dependent on. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start the Q&A with a question of my own. Um, you guys, I, I never get to ask a question otherwise. Uh, you guys touched on this a little bit, but I'll just be blunt. Um, we talked, uh, your paper looked at the you know, role of the United States in these regions and your countries in particular um, in terms of outreach. I'm curious to know, what about China? Is it using space as a soft power tool to do power projection, uh, specifically country regions, uh, or is it not in there whatsoever as a competitor? How, how did your countries uh, approach cooperation, or are they being approached by the Chinese for cooperation? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, if you look at um, how China's cooperated with them, they go through the China Great Wall Cooperation, it's a state-owned company, so it's very much endorsed by um, by the country, by the government, mm -hmm. um, and you look at who they cooperated with. You know, it's Nigeria and Venezuela, and um, it's not really a secret that they have um, access to natural resources that China might be might be um, excited to to have access to. Um, so I think it's very strategic on on China's part. And although um, I'm not sure about Venezuela, but at least for the Nigerian contract, um, it was competed internationally, and um, they said that China had the best offer from them. Um, so they are making that effort, um, but yeah, I mean, I. But you look at it in one way, and you know, China is offering a very good deal to these emerging mm -hmm. space countries. And um, whereas Surrey satellites, I think, uh, in the case of Nigeria, trained like 20 Nigerian engineers. Um, China trained over 50 um, mm -hmm. Nigerians. So. And, and I would add that, you know, it's also a decision that the partner country is making, you know, mm -hmm. because it may be consistent with their own policies. Um, and the counterfactual to that, of course, is would they have cooperated with the United States had the United States offered a similar package? But, um, you know, it's interesting to see, but I think, for example, um, and China is one of their important partners, they also have a, a lot of other partners. So I don't think it's, it's you know, China only or anything like that. Um, um, but of course, choosing China speaks to you know foreign policy goals of diversifying relationships and moving a little bit away from the United States. Mm -hmm. So, so I think um, it's interesting to understand the decision not only from the China perspective of to why is it reaching out to other partners, but also from the perspective of the of the end country as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have said it's interesting that um, the Chinese 
they, they do these export programs and they reach out to these emerging space actors. And um, Laura just hinted at this, that the question whether or not the United States would do that, um, I think, is sort of a foregone conclusion. We know that we, aren't, we don't do that really anymore because we're not in the Cold War environment. But we could certainly be doing what Surrey is doing, what Megan mentioned, um, those microsatellite uh, programs that export not only technology but also like, practices and export um, these methodologies, um, I think are really important and something we could be doing. Um, not necessarily as a government, but we could have policies that perhaps are a bit more relaxed in export controls, which then allow us to have these sort of organizations like Surrey to be in the United States and reach out to these countries and set these behavioral norms. Okay, I'll open up to the crowd. I would ask that um, you would wait for the microphone and please identify yourself before asking your question. So, any questions for the speakers? John. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I think I'm, I'm going to anticipate the answer how I ask the question. As part of the uh, policy shift in Japan a few years ago, uh, there was a directive in the basic space law that Japan should begin to use its space capabilities as a foreign policy tool. Uh, and outreach to cooperation with other countries. Did you see any of that anywhere in the countries you looked at? Speaking in, in Asia Pacific region, I didn't really see it. Um, I saw it in, in certainly in, um, in APR staff, um, and maybe that was like an outgrowth of that effort. Um, but India is very much pledged to developing indigenous capabilities for their launch programs. Malaysia's reached out to other countries, but it's not necessarily been to Japan, and I haven't seen any evidence of Japan reaching out to them. Um, looking at it from a case study standpoint, those two countries. No, I didn't see any engagement with Japan in Africa. What about Russia? Oh, Russia, certainly. Uh, Russia is an important partner of Brazil, for example. Um, after the 2003 uh, disaster in the Alcantara launch base, um, Russia has been a key player in helping make sure that the launch center is up to par in terms of safety and, you know, standards and environmentally friendly fuel and that kind of thing. Um, but yes, uh, I think China and Russia are the key, the, the most um, important um, in this context, but I think consistent with what, with your, what you were suggesting, it's interesting when you go through the documents, for example, in of Brazil's um, legislature or, or Venezuela's, and and they do put in there that you know partnerships in space should should be consistent with foreign policy goals. And so it's not that you partner with just anybody. It's, it's you have to think of larger national goals. To answer the question for India, yes, um, they're still engaged on the GSLV upper stage. Um, they're an essential partner for India because otherwise they really wouldn't have an upper stage right now. And that's really not even Russia necessarily training Indian engineers, but it's actually providing the upper stage right now while they figure out how to figure how to do that on their own. What about Europe with its former colonies? Uh, uh. Seems like a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> the British are being very supportive to Washington. Have <laughs> 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 you seen any European engagement with South Africa, for example? I've seen a lot of it in their space science areas. There's, I think that's a bit of a legacy as well. They were there very early on with their space science um, telescopes, and they're still there now. 
but not much more than that. Don't they, aren't they involved um, the recent conference, the Spider Conference on Disaster Management? Wasn't that co-sponsored by the Austrian government? I'm not sure. Um, Austrians. Yeah. yeah, the Austrians the do do it. So just minor, uh, maybe and in terms of that. Foundation. And the Secure World Foundation, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way. Yes. Uh, well, so the Spider add. was a German initiative. Well, there you go. So, so I'm, I'm Oh, can you wait for the microphone, please? Uh, we're recording this, so it's important to speak in the mic. Thanks. So I'm struck in a way by, uh, by how retro the whole discussion is, like it's chasing the interval of the 1950s and 60s, as opposed to looking where uh, the United States, even there's an article today on Russia looking towards space tourism. Did you guys detect any kind of discussion about the use of launch? I know I'd seen something about Singapore at one point in time, looking at having a, a commercial space port and looking to uh, emerging markets as opposed to very, very defined national capabilities. Did you guys encounter any of that looking at these developing nations? Well, we were focused on very national civil space activities. Once you get, you know, even further than that into defense or commercial, you kind of lose control. So we we were thinking in terms of our scope. But but Brazil is looking to commercialize the Alcantara launch base whenever it finishes, you know, building it and, and rebuilding it. Um, and one of their commercial deals is with, um, oh, why did I forget? I was, sorry. The Cyclone 4. Who launched the Cyclone 4? Ukraine. Ukraine, sorry, mm-hmm. excuse me. It slipped my mind. Um, but they have, a, they have an agreement with Ukraine to launch that, that um, rocket from the Alcantara Launch Center. And so, but it's hopefully, in their view, the first of many um, efforts to commercialize the launch phase. But there's a history there that um, we can talk about later. But it has to do with efforts to for them to get um, U.S. companies to launch from Brazil and kind of how that, that created some tension. In the case of Malaysia, uh, their first satellite actually was a commercial satellite, but it was acquired in very traditional means. Uh, the MESAT was um, through an outside um, company and then in India, of course, there's the Antrix um, organization, but that's really just an offshoot of the Indian government, really. Um, for Nigeria, I know they were hopefully looking to expand their um, commercial endeavors and their telecommunications when they got a teleca- telecommunication satellite from China. That, um, I think it was after 18 months, um, went out of service. Uh, but they were setting up national policies, they were reviewing, I think they're currently reviewing their telecommunications policy right now to sort of spur commercial um, um, commercial activities there, but from what I read, it was much more inward focused. They were trying to boost the Nigerian economy, um, but hopefully providing services to other African countries through their satellite. Um, in terms of South Africa, um, I know that they're the Sunspace company um, definitely offers the consulting services, they export satellites, um, subsystems, um, and things like that. Um, and I think they're, they said their customers are located in, in Europe, the Middle East, um, and throughout Africa. So they're definitely looking at that as a way to boost their economy. Gentleman in the back. <laughs> I think I want to take a little bit um, to, to maybe counter Pete's um, assertion that it's retro. Um, it, what I'm hearing from, from certainly your report and what you're talking now, it's almost antique. But in many ways, we're looking at this as a balance of power game, as we saw in you know eight, late 18th century, early 19th century politics. And what space is actually showing is this kind of the era of superpowers 
dominating this, this particular area is over, and we're now seeing a rise in competing equities and diversified equities between many states who now have options in a way that perhaps we haven't seen since, what, the late 40s through to, to very recently. Would you agree? Or disagree? Um, I think I would agree. I think um, the, the policies that guide the decisions that the countries we looked at on who they cooperate with is less on whose side you are on. Is who is offering me the better package. And particularly, you know, even the Venezuelan um, case is interesting because they are very loud on how it's tied to the Bolivarian Socialist Revolution and, and to the foreign policies of the Chavez administration and all of that. But when you look at the program carefully, it actually... Um, addresses very concrete national goals. It's actually, I think, built upon a more stable foundation than, um, than all of these rhetoric. Um, so I think, and I think that's partly due to the fact that they have so many challenges justifying these expenses. They have to show something for it. But, um, but certainly, uh, you know, the truth is that the biggest benefit that they've gotten from the, the arrangement with China has been the training of Venezuelans. It's something they, they emphasize a lot. So I think if you had another country that, that could offer something similar, where they could feel like after the arrangement has been made, they have something to build upon, you, they would certainly cooperate. And you see that in the case with Brazil as well. I mean, in documents, this is not even that much recent, but when, when they're looking at, at the, that period when they were um, looking at the remote sensing program in China, which was uh, late 90s, um, you read statements of them saying, we don't just want somebody to give us something and do us a favor and cooperate in that way. We want to, we want engagements and, and activities that where we can build together. And so I think it's, it's this demand that cooperation is something that benefits both parties. Um, however they define it, that's something else. But but again, I think it's guided more by what they get out of the relationship rather than, oh, uh, whose side are you on, you know, anti-U.S. sentiment or anything like that. I, I wanted to sort of ask a, a specifically on that. Uh, P, can you move the microphone, please? It's on its way. <laughs> Thanks. So on the note of it specifically responding to national needs, I'm curious if there's really, in fact, a market that justifies this. Because couldn't you just, cheaper than creating your own space program, buy the imagery from Spot or Google Earth or Antrix? So it's, and I would guess that the answer is yes, that there's enough remote sensing, but I don't know. So I'm guessing that the, the actual national goals have to be beyond the real need for remote sensing. Well, in the case of Malaysia, um, I think that might be the case in some respects. Um, you could certainly just buy a satellite, or you could just um, buy the product that the satellite provides, but you don't gain that, uh, that understanding, that engineering. Um, you don't have a new workforce. You don't have a new high-technology focus in your economy. And that was exactly the purpose that they initiated a civil program was because they were interested in reaching that knowledge economy by 2020, and they saw this as an opportunity to help encourage that. And so I think that was um, kind of the motivation there and why you would do that. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you need to understand space as part of this broad portfolio of science and technology investments that these countries are making. They, they've learned from the experience of other countries that when you invest in science and technology, the economy is bolstered, you create a workforce, all sorts of things. And so, so that's part, as, as you know, consistent with what Dan was saying, it's not just getting the imagery, it's building up everything around it. 
Um, but also, I would say the case of Brazil is interesting. They were using Landsat images um, exclusively for deforestation back in the 80s and 90s. But then um, they weren't really sure how long Landsat was going to be there. Or, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there are inconsistencies in U.S. Earth observation policies. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so I, think, I think for a country like Brazil in particular, where deforestation and managing the Amazon forest is such an important priority, um, it has to do with, with that assurance. In the case of Africa, it's it's embedded in their national space policies. If you look at Africa's in, or South Africa's in particular, it says, you know, we realize that the future um, of a lot of these emerging economies is going to be based on success in science and technology areas. So they can't just buy, uh, they could just buy imagery, but it's much better for them strategically if they build up these capabilities themselves and can use it to diversify like, their export markets. Um, so I think they're looking at it very strategically in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Other questions? The gentleman on the front. <laughs> Hi, just um, a very good presentation, by the way. Um, Thank you. For all of you. But the, um, I, as, as you were talking about um, the motivations of um, uh, Brazil and, and uh, Venezuela and so forth, um, I'm reminded of the um, rather different situation in Colombia, mm-hmm. where Colombia has spent a number of years now building up its capacity to actually use the data, relying on Landsat and, and uh, Brazil's, um, and, and the China-Brazil Severs, um, yeah. uh, Severs, uh data and so forth. Um, Anyway, to, to build enough capacity in, in, in actually making use of data throughout their government mm-hmm. so that they can, uh, one, they know better what it is they really want if, as they build a, a satellite eventually. And they do plan to build a remote sensing satellite, um, at least one, and probably more, as a matter of fact. But, it's, it's really a different approach, and um, I, it'd be interesting to see what other countries are, are doing in, in Latin America. Some of them I know a little bit about, yes. others I don't. So, yes. Yeah. But I, I would say that where, where our analysis is still useful to understand Colombia is, well, as you well know, they struggle a lot with the public and political support as well. Um, you know, how, how far these efforts are going to move, it depends on where the money is. Other questions? Um, you mentioned that a number of the countries are developing space activities and, and space technologies because they want to um, create a knowledge economy or drive innovation. Um, and like you said, that comes up in their policies and say that that's one of the big goals. I'm just curious, how much did you see them saying, you know, in places where they've done some work or in Nigeria they've trained a lot of people, saying we have started to create a knowledge economy or this has driven innovation up to this point? Well, in the case of uh, in Asia Pacific, more specifically in Malaysia, um, I think the jury is certainly uh, still out on whether they've created uh, a knowledge economy. And I would be very hesitant to suggest that it was the, the space program there that, that did that, if they do. I think, and I, and I think they're very open and honest in stating that it's meant for inspirational purposes. It's a soft power, like for, domestically speaking, a soft power mechanism to get the, the masses interested 
Um, they actually had sent a, an astronaut to the International Space Station under an agreement with Russia. And, um, you know, it was not really meant necessarily for a specific Malaysian space mission. In fact, they spent most of their time um, in the public domain discussing um, how do you practice Islam in space because the astronauts going to be there during Ramadan. So there, there's sort of, it was much more of a, an encouragement and, um, and inspiring the, the youth and, and engage in high technology in that case. Um, in the case of South Africa, I think they're very good at, at trying to um, reach out to the public and show the, the concrete things that they've done, mostly because um, Peter Martinez is, is a big advocate of um, the space program there, and he's involved in, he's, I think he's co-chairing the working group right now in the UN on space sustainability. He's the chair. He's the chair. Um, and so if you, if you like, go to their website, they have, like, monthly newsletters, they have um, handouts that they can give, and they do tie it back to... Um, very solid things that they've done. Um, with Nigeria, I saw less than that. Um, I didn't really see much on their website in terms of trying to give solid examples, but I know that their government um, is saying that they're using the space technology. They're having a really hard time, though, I think, in the commercial sector, um, getting it that, um, that technology out um, and spurring innovation in the commercial sector. It's much harder there for that. Yes, I, I would just add that um, it's interesting where the emphasis lies because of this interest in just showing the very concrete benefits of space. Um, Brazil also has uh, an astronaut that flew on the space station, but they mention it kind of, oh, by the way, mm. but it's not, you know, they, they talk a lot about remote sensing and in the documents they emphasize, you know, excuse me, the centers and how many people are employed, blah, blah, blah. But then, and then also we kind of have a human spaceflight program. But, so, you know, it's interesting that because they don't see that as tied directly to development and economic benefit, it's not the focus of their PR efforts. One other point that I uh, failed to mention, too, um, in the case of India, um, we started out, they started out in India with um, very much focused on development and having, like, these very specific needs in the country and space capabilities address those needs. Um, but now we see that they're actually interested in space science and that they're sending probes to the moon. And so there's definitely been a shift to like a higher level of um, more discretionary sciences and things that you can do once you've developed that basic underlying foundation of technical talent and knowledge. And, and so you can kind of see that progression as sort of a success um, in what you're alluding to. Just to jump on Mariel's question, uh, U.S. government documents speak a lot about the need to establish or enhance the space industrial base. Did you guys run against uh, run up against that in any of your research for your countries or regions, or is that maybe five steps down the road? Well, for Venezuela, it's still early to mm -hmm. tell. Um, that I think that's why they emphasize, you know, that 90 Venezuelans have been trained in China because I think I think they're focusing on that. But I have seen that as one of the concerns um, uh, of Brazil. Mm -hmm. In a recent article in the Space Review, for example, they talked about that and they said how um, the current the current workforce is going to be completely replaced in, in, in the coming years. So so there is a need to, to train the next generation. Mm -hmm. okay. Good question. <laughs> oh, can you wait for the mic, please? Thanks. You've used the term uh, emerging space nations. So I really couldn't understand what you mean by it. Sure, that's certainly a fair question. Uh, we actually have a backup slide that will kind of help explain where our thinking comes from that. Um, so there was actually uh, some work done by uh, a PhD candidate at MIT, Danielle Wood, 
And we help help to, to sort of look at this graphic to explain where each of these countries falls on the space technology ladder. So you have at the very top uh, launch capability, and that's assumed to mean an indigenous launch capability, an indigenous satellite capability. And that's where India is located, which is the highest rung of the ladder. Um, and that's not to imply that, in, that there's a value judgment um, on where you are on the ladder in any way. Um, but we also see that the other respective countries are different stages. We have um, South Africa and Brazil on the LEO satellite. They build locally at a certain level um, and have their own indigenous capability. And then, of course, Nigeria, Malaysia, and Venezuela fit on this third rung, where it says LEO satellite. They procure with train services like the Surrey Space Limited um, and their South Korean counterpart. So we use this as sort of our rubric to help define what it means to be emerging because certainly uh, India is in a totally different class than Nigeria and we acknowledge that with this basic structure. Okay, then what I understood is Jungi, when you use this term emerging, there are two things. Emerging space faring nation and emerging users. So India is among this. You see what's a space faring nation? Space faring nation is one which has got capability to build satellite Mm -hmm. Capability to launch satellites. Mm -hmm. You must uh, differentiate this. Uh, well, good. At least I saw this. So India is a country which is a space-faring nation, and, and it is to, it is in league with China, Japan, and India. These are the three uh, emerging space nations, or rather, expanding established nations are U.S. and uh, Russia. So I think that part we have to take. Well, I, I would add that, that um, if there's not a set definition of that, I, I, would, I would counter. Because um, Europe is considered an established, even though it's not in the same. So, so it's, it's interesting when you look in the literature and you try to find what the definitions are, it, it varies. And so that's, that's kind of the definition we used, but it's true that in other definitions, India would not even be considered. Uh, India does not come under this category, which is said it is not an emerging space user. It's an emerging space setting nation. Yes. That part. What, what is yet? Because what I, uh, what I found is it was uh, your coverage of India was you know uh, grossly underestimating uh, where India stands. Uh, that's what I found. And that's an important distinction to make, and we certainly recognize the and sophistication. Because, because all other things which you mentioned, space sustainability, debris, and all. It's the countries which are launching satellites, it is the launch vehicles and other things which are creating the data. So all that figures, you know, countries, the, the space-faring nations are more to do with that. <laughs> as far as commercialization of space is also concerned, the other countries, none of them have uh, launch capability, including Brazil. Mm -hmm. And none of them uh, are really able to build their own satellites. Also, um, uh, just to add into this, because I was one of the people that suggested we pick India as one of our area, the areas that they would look at. Um, particularly, I was very interested in, in how the United States would do outreach to different regional space, um, I guess, interested countries. And the reason why, so we pick India as a country that the United States may be interested in, but there's still um, discussions on how to bring them into international community for discussing responsible space behavior. I thought that's why we thought it'd be interesting as a compare and contrast for India, for Brazil, for South Africa, as the more developed space-faring or space-using countries, whatever you wanted to phrase that, to countries that are just wetting their feet, so to speak. Yes. And that's really what the interest was. Scott. Well, when taking into account space-faring versus space-using, I wonder if you could speculate, uh, again, by region as to whether or not uh, countries are more or less likely uh, to bring new demand to the international addressable 
market. I mean, I, I see lots of commercial space discussions about serving needs of a lot of these, you know, emerging or space using whatever countries. At the same time, you see lots of national programs to build their own indigenous capabilities. And so we're not competing in the pencil market. I mean, we're basically up against other parastatal sorts of enterprises around the world. So one argument is, gee, lots of new countries, lots of new customers, great opportunity. The other argument is everybody's building their own, demand is being divided up among the smaller groups, and effectively the addressable markets for particularly U.S. commercial firms will be less. Mm. So I realize it's speculation, but can you speculate as, as, as you look at these trends, is this going to be good for U.S. commercial space exports or bad for U.S. commercial space exports? It depends on what rules govern commercial space experts. <laughs> but um, assuming they are flexible to that, I think um, we three understand that realistically, the countries we looked at, with the exception of, it, of India, are likely not going to each have their own spaceport and their own you know, indigenous launch capability. And even Brazil there still has a couple of hurdles to go through. So if if they do set up, and, it, and it's going to take a long time. So until, you know, as they set up these programs, as they keep defining their needs, and they keep identifying what kind of satellites they want to build, I think it's going to contribute to create a greater demand. Um, but it depends, if, it's go, if it goes to the United States, I think it depends on, on whether they can or not. When it comes to the Asia-Pacific region, I would say in India, there's really no uh, opportunity really there. I mean, they're definitely trying to develop their own indigenous capability, and they have Antrix, and they're, that is very much their own push. But I think, interestingly, in Malaysia, I would say maybe, um, maybe not specifically Malaysia per se, but using it as an example, anywhere where you have less rules or less established um, laws on these subjects could be an opportunity um, perhaps for that commercial sector, um, but I, I don't really necessarily. I can't. It's hard for me to speculate about specifically about Malaysia. Um, I'd say both Nigeria and South Africa are very clear that they want to establish indigenous capabilities to build their own satellites and launch their own satellites. They're very clear about that. But from where they are now to to that point, I think it'll take a while. And so maybe in the near term, there's opportunities for the United States there. Um. Uh, I guess I would start my question with just uh, uh, agreeing on the one hand that India is very important for the United States to look at and look in this context. But on the other hand, uh, they are very much an emerged space power. I would think quite established in comparison to uh, others that remain. And in thinking through uh, what you had started to talk about, Dan, in terms of these these different agencies with which to establish it, what are, what are both uh, Russia and uh, China's outreach, one of the things that because you, you'd sort of bend India as an emerging space power, you missed that they are doing a tremendous amount of engagement on their own, very likely to build up a third competing block of, of countries in the region uh, that are likely to uh, cleave to the sort of things that they're providing. For instance, when I observed them launching OceanSat, I think there were something like eight total satellites on there, most or a significant number that were from other countries. So how did you, when you sort through this, these sort of two major blocks, um, how do you see uh, this shaping up in terms of India, not as an emerging space program, but as one of the, one of the sort of established 
powers that is outreaching and using this diplomacy with others in the region? And the least. Well, I think there's, there's definitely a desire on their part to establish that third block that you talked about, but I, I fail to see like where that those organizations have developed. Um, I think it's it's very much maybe a, bit a point of frustration for them, um, and that they're sort of reacting to the Chinese frequently. Um, for example, their ASAT system. I would I would certainly wonder whether or not that system would have ever came to be had it not been for the Chinese ASAT test. Um, and then also the the PPWT uh, treaty. That's something that's something that um, I think that the Indians um, maybe they they would certainly use the EU code as a way of deflecting against that, um, but they haven't necessarily spoken up as much on that issue as well. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, that's, I think there, there's, there's a bit of a frustration on trying to establish that leadership in the region, that it's sort of China or not China, um, but they would certainly like to establish that dialogue as, the, as being a leader. Ben? I'm just going to follow on to, to Scott's point. The, uh, the position has been put forward that one of the things that the Chinese have done are created markets for launch satellite service where markets wouldn't have existed. I mean, the Bangladesh example, I think, is a good one. How did the Bangladeshis pay for their satellite with a very large <laughs> aid package from China, which then went straight back to Beijing? Um, so I think kind of to maybe take a bit further what Scott was saying, do you see the development of this kind of almost like aid for aid for satellites programs and support of these emerging nations building new markets or do you think that there actually is any current ability of the current players to, to expand further than they have already gone in kind of SSTL kind of way? Well, I think I would agree with what you're saying um, in terms of the case of Bolivia as well. Bolivia and China are engaging in a similar deal and China's going to launch their satellite. And I think, but I think there needs to be an interest in space in the region um, before, before China steps in and says, I'm going to launch you a satellite that you don't think you need. I think, I think there has been for the last couple of years, particularly because of the Brazilian and Argentinian example, I think there has been growing awareness in the Latin American region over how space ties into the de development effort. And then China has picked up on that and has been able to say, well, I will do this for you, you know. Um, so, so I want to say um, it's possible. It's possible that, that this kind of aggressive package selling could create new markets. But I don't know if any other country um, would be able to do that, being that you're not really winning, getting too much out of the arrangement, at least in terms of money. It's, it's building that relationship. Oh, my. Right. What did I say? Thank <laughs> you. Um, actually, I, I, um, I wanted to ask a somewhat different question, so this is not particularly okay. a follow-on to your, your point there. Uh, but it reminded me of something. Um, and that is that, what, how much do you think, um, uh, let's see, um, Brazil, um, Venezuela, Malaysia, are, and uh, Nigeria, and basically all the countries except India, to leave them out for a second. Mm -hmm. um, how much do you think they are motivated by being 
being seen as part of a space club? For Brazil, that's certainly the case. Um, they, they think of being in a, a space power and again of having an indigenous launch vehicle as the ultimate evidence of what a global power does. And so it's consistent with some of their other policies to, to make sure they have a seat at the table. Now, in the case of um, Venezuela, and I can't speak so much for Malaysia, but in the case of Venezuela, I don't think that's so much the case. I think, um, I think it's not so much power projection and the club, because they, they don't so much believe in that club, you know? Um, except, yeah, they don't give credence to a club, um, except in the, in, in the UN forum. Um, they are active there and they think that's the legitimate forum, you know, so they have a, a seat there and, and they want to kind of exert influence there. But, but again, I think it's mostly regional. Their interests, I think, are mostly regional. Um, in Africa, I think it might be a little more in the background. Like, I think they do have this sense of countries that engage in space activities do lead regions. And so I think it's in the background, but I think they, it seems, like, I haven't seen like official statements on this, but I get the feel, especially after reading things like their national space policies and space strategies, that they try to actively avoid that rhetoric because uh, I'm thinking specifically of um, after Nigeria Sat 1 was launched, the BBC had a, had a forum online, their website, you know, what do you think about this? And all the Nigerians that responded all said, you know, this is just, you know, a power projection thing. We shouldn't be wasting money on this. They were talking about the Apollo program, the Cold War. And so I think it, it's almost um, a strategic thing not to say that, at least in their official documents. In Malaysia? In, in the case of Malaysia, I would say it's um, just what I was reiterating earlier. It's, it's a domestic um, view. It's not necessarily about joining the space club internationally, but more about motivating their own people. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Yes, right here. <laughs> this one right here. It's um, I, my question goes back to um, India and China. Don't you think that India, in any way, had broken in the market in Asia Pacific versus to China? Um, with the question on the launch, I don't see any Asia Pacific country that rushed in to ask China to launch any of this satellite. For example, um, India just did with uh, Singapore, and they did with Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for Asia Pacific country, if if the question of launching or training, they seem to look at to India certainly was in their mind, or the U.S. or um, the Europeans, but never China. I think China has more influence than Africa, but I don't think they have broken in the market the way India did for Asia Pacific. Um, do you, what is the specific question, if I may? How India broke into the market in Asia Pacific versus China in terms of the soft powers? Uh, well, I, I mean, they've certainly developed their own indigenous capability, and that's something that um, you know, is, is looked to as a, a power projection and it's certainly a, a, a level of sophistication. When it comes to actually hosting payloads from other Asia-Pacific regions, I'm not very familiar um, on the track record that they have on that, unfortunately. Dinesh, would you like to uh, yeah, enlighten us on this? Yeah, what she has been, this is an interesting question. 
fact, you earlier mentioned that India's program has been frustrating. I think one of the most successful programs as far as international cooperation is concerned is India. We have launched satellites for more than 16 countries. Uh, it is including can advanced countries like Canada, uh, Germany, France, Italy. These are the few. We have launched even for Brazil. We have launched for, uh, of course, uh, in Asia also, whether it is Singapore, Indonesia, Israel. And as far as the launch capability is concerned, I think people are not aware. PSLV is supposed to they think it's only for Leo. PSLV launches satellites in, G, uh, in geostationary as well. The last inside satellite was launched using a PSLV. PSLV can send even a, 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 a spacecraft to the moon. What we failed was in GSLV Mark III was we wanted to raise the capacity to four tons and six tons. And uh, unfortunately, you know, space launch is a risky uh, business. Mm -hmm. so that is where. So India's program has not been frustrating as well. Well, I would like to make clear when I say frustrated, I don't mean necessarily in capability or ability to do uh, the missions that they seek out to do. Rather, I was speaking to the, uh, the soft power um, struggle that seems to be going on Chinese issues and whether or not they're following, uh, the Asian Pacific region is following the Chinese or not following the Chinese. I totally disagree. India has not used it as a soft power at all. It, that is what the Chinese are trying to do. They are using, you see, their collaboration with uh, Nigeria and Venezuela has got nothing to do with the capability of these countries. It's simply they are using, uh, uh, they are approaching countries which has got natural resources. You know, Nigeria and Venezuela, they've got large deposits of oil. And these countries can't even pay for the satellites. They have been given, it has been given to them on loan. And unfortunately, the performance has been very poor. The Nigerian satellite won't function even a little more than a year, and uh, it's uh, non-functioning. All right, thank so, you for the Indian perspective, Dinesh. I'm going to move on to the next question. Mariel, please. So, Dinesh, so can you, thank you. Just to highlight uh, question. Hi, I, so my question is, um, it seems like a lot of the nations, kind of lower down on your chart here, are following the same process of you know, getting training, procuring satellite, trying to develop their own indigenous capability. And so going back to your overall issue of sustainability, is there any thought or discussion within these countries or within the regions about how sustainable that is as a model? I mean, can every, should every country try to create an indigenous capability to build satellites, you know, not even thinking about launch, but is that something that that's being discussed, whether that's a good model to follow overall? It's interesting you bring it up. I think in the context of the conference of of the Americas and, and the discussions over whether South America should have a regional space agency, they bring that up a lot because they think that it's wasting. And you speak to people who are very adamant about this. Um, and they think that only a regional agency like ESA would be able to take, take the most advantage of these limited resources instead of replicating capabilities. And so they, they think that that model is not sustainable. They think, you know, Ecuador is not going to have us, uh, you know, <laughs> just, and, and, and you know, but, but so, so what they think is that the best approach is to have those discussions and to figure out, well, what's the best that Ecuador can give us and Nicaragua can give us and then kind of build a regional system. How, I mean, how likely is that going to be? That's a separate question, but they're certainly having those discussions. Uh, John. This is much more comment on what the presentations made me think about than on the presentation. Uh, 
but I want to start by criticizing Danielle's ladder uh, because it seems to me there is a, a stage where a country might want to be able to build systems or subsystems but not a whole satellite mm -hmm. uh, and not aspire to all of the integration and test facilities <coughs> required for total satellite building that's not on that uh, ladder right and I think I, I should have mentioned on the disclaimer too that um, once you reach a certain rung, does not to say that you can't go to another rung for uh, another type of mission or uh, anyway. Uh, that thought led me to uh, an observation that there are countries that fit the definition of emerging space countries in Europe, mm -hmm. like oh, Estonia or Romania, uh, who aspire to become space capable uh, by their membership in the European Space Agency, mm -hmm. primarily, and, uh, and secondarily through bilateral relationships. And that's a, really a different model. Uh, mm -hmm. If you talk about a Latin American Space Agency, for example, uh, there's no rich country there that can serve as the assistance to other countries in the way that France or Germany, UK. Uh, Which is why Brazil is so skeptical, because right. is it going right. to be it's in, all, in its purse? So there are different forms of regional space agencies. Mm -hmm. I mean, the European one is letting the richer countries help the rest of Europe develop the capability. I don't think that would be, you know, would a Japanese-led or a Chinese-led or an Indian-led regional agency have that kind of role? I don't, I don't know. It, it's, anyway, it's, it's just an un, unintegrated stream of thought. <laughs> yes, <obvious>. yeah. <laughs> uh, Scott. Well, I think in the, in the same spirit of, uh, of thought that this uh, prompted, I would lead back to think something you said at the beginning. Uh, which was about taking care of the regional context. The regional context for Europe is different than the regional context for Latin America, different than the regional context for Asia or, or Africa. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and therefore, space is subordinate to those other sorts of, of things. In the case of, uh, of Asia, it's, I think, particularly interesting that you have two different regional organizations. The Chinese-led one aspires, in my view, to look something like the European Space Agency, where you have a fairly rich country in the center, China, helping out a bunch of smaller, less rich uh, member states uh, in, in, a, in a structure that looks very much like your APSAF and the Japanese-led is more of a coordination process, but not really centered on, on Japan. Europe has already made the political decision for integration, of which then space kind of falls out and contributes to, whereas in, in Asia there is no uh, political framework. Uh, for discussion, and in many ways, Asia is ridden by a series of what Clay Moles called, you know, hostile dyads, uh, all kinds of different hostile pairs, of which the U.S. is oddly enough probably the least hostile uh, to everybody uh, in, the, in the center of it. And so, in looking at how these different groups uh, uh, develop, I think uh, Dr. Watson's comment about uh, different ways of being uh, is dead on, but it's subject to the regional uh, dynamics. Uh, in each of these areas, and so we can't look at space by itself. We have to look at what are the politics. Yeah. Um, I have a question for the panel, really quick. Um, let's say 
just a theoretical um, idea. Um, export control reform happens. The United States is able to cooperate with whoever we decide we'd like to go to. Uh, the State Department approaches you and says, I, as, as regional experts, who would be our top tier you know, country that we should really focus on reaching out to? Who would you guys identify and why? Well, I would say um, when it comes to if export controls were relaxed, I wouldn't necessarily say that the United States should be, as a government, be the one engaging them. It should be allowing, um, in a more organic way, an organization like Surrey Space Limited to um, to exist, to, to crop up, and then they can make their judgments as the same way that Surrey did or the South Korean company did. I would say in my region, certainly Brazil, um, at least even if you look at it you know, just from the perspective of cost-benefit, taking advantage of having a launch center that's two degrees south of the equator would be fantastic, I think. So if you build up a more stable um, relationship where you are able to take advantage of that and making sure, of course, that it's safe and that it's, you know, um, you put in all those safeguards so that your satellites are still, are still going to launch to the same capacity that they would here in Kennedy or somewhere else, mm -hmm. then I think it's a win-win. About Africa? I would say probably, you know, the, the ones that are in the ARMC. Um, so South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and um, Algeria, because they're the ones leading um, Africa in terms of space technology. Um, and I think other African countries will be definitely looking to them um, to see what they do. So it would be a great place to start in the United States. Mm -hmm. okay. um, a new questioner, Audrey and then Nash. I'd like to ask about um, your assessment of commitment towards an uh, attitude towards responsible behavior, because in your discussion of the EU code, you said there was sort of general agreement of the principles, for example, in the EU code. But I'm wondering how strong you assess that um, sort of perspective to be, and whether when push comes to shove and the trade-off between mission performance and, say, debris mitigation uh, presents itself to one of these nations, whether mission performance is going to win out over, um, say, debris mitigation, for example. Good question. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I couldn't say um, in terms of the African perspective. Um, I mean, they, they're very interested in, I think, preserving their satellites because a lot of them can't afford to pay for another one if they lose theirs. And I think you really have to drive that point home that, you know, you will lose this satellite, you know, if people aren't behaving responsibly in space. And maybe to put it in that terms, they might try and do the, the best thing for everybody. Because um, yeah. maybe, maybe try to explain that you know another country could be in that position and ruin it for you. Um, but it's, it's definitely difficult. Um, in the case of Brazil, I would say that it's, it's complicated because you know when you look at, at what led to the disaster in 2003, part of it was just um, they, they weren't following the rules in terms of safety and in terms of of, of other standards. So, but, but I think it's encouraging that when it comes to the policies on remote sensing and other issues which they care a lot about, they, they are really committed to addressing these issues in an international way and they do talk about responsibility. And so they do agree with the spirit of the code because it captures all of this. Um, I think, and this is what Dan was alluding to, their, their criticism of the code is has to do with it not being binding and it not being it um, copious, which they think is the legitimate forum to have this discussion. You know, um, so I would say that that on their part they would probably be 
you know, if, if they are aware of how to do things in a more cost-effective way, I think they would certainly be able to behave responsibly even at the cost of perhaps a higher launch cost. Or in the case of the Asia-Pacific, I'd say uh, with Malaysia it's difficult to speculate um, because I, I'm not intimately familiar with their, um, their practices of how they did their microsatellite necessarily and whether they make that trade-off. Um, but I think in India there's no question that they would adhere to um, safety uh, precautions and trying to mitigate debris, mitigate space debris mitigation or um, you know, any of those sort of um, possibly endangering um, effects. Speaking of India, Dinesh, from I heard from you that there is a regional organization headed by Japan and China. Are you aware that there is another third regional organization headed by India? I was not. Well, let me tell you, it is the oldest one. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and in fact, India has uh, a program for third world satellite. And this whole thing is supported by the United Nations. Whereas the other two are just, you know, loosely, it's a namesake uh, 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 regional cooperation uh, organization. And this is headquartered in Dehradun, in India. Where you must go through, they are doing very good job. What is it called, Tanesh? What is this organization called? Uh, when the exact name I forget, it's some Asia something. Uh, and it was earlier, exact uh, abbreviations, uh, I can tell you the uh, names of the countries. And uh, what we have been doing, in fact, Malaysia, Singapore, all these countries, Asian countries are part of it. And let me please uh, correct you. India uh, does not fall in Asia-Pacific. Asia-Pacific is it's Indian Ocean. So that is one thing which I noticed. But, uh, so in South Asia, uh, this is one organization. And earlier, India was not into microsatellites and small satellites. We never built it, in fact. But in uh, just around 2009, we sent a satellite what was known as Indian mini satellite. We have just ventured, and this is specifically to uh, help countries, you know, the other countries, they cannot uh, invest into big satellites. They can only start with micro satellites. And there are two commercial uh, and communication satellites. We intend to have around one ton. You know, all these countries, they can't have three ton, four ton, five ton satellites. It's only for the big countries. So we are making our efforts to, because there's a very big gap. You speak of the US, unfortunately, the U.S. is totally isolated because of ITR. There is no collab, international cooperation with United States as it is concerned. In fact, this, in, in 1999, it, yeah, it had 70% of the world uh, satellite market. Today, it is less than 40. It went to something like 34. So I think you need to also investigate why the United States is not there on the international scene. And the whole field has been left open to countries like Japan, China, and India. So, you need to see this. Great. It is the most effective regional organization. All right, one last question from the crowd. Pete. In South Asia. So, I, I was uh, uh, very intrigued by uh, Dr. Lawson's question as well, because it, it occurs to me that if part of the, the reason to begin or to ask the questions about space sustainability uh, is that you have more and more nations participating in space. I think it, it's quite true that the, the number of nations that might be building particular payloads to participate in space or are benefiting from specific payloads probably would be wider than you know out of the box shrink wrapped uh, capabilities. And you know, for instance, 
Canada builds very specific systems. And I think that also offers another interesting opportunity if you're talking about what the United States can do in terms of soft power. Certainly, India uh, did provide an amazing example with the number of countries it involved in terms of sensors on its Chandrayaan 1 probe. I think you guys set a record. I can't remember how many. There were like five or six different countries that supplied. Uh, yeah, the total uh, uh, 15, five from India, two from US, and the remaining seven from Europe and Canada. So, so eight countries outside of India. And that, I think, is a, a, a different way that you might be building equity in, uh, in terms, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how, how you might approach something like that in terms of hosted payloads as a specific tool of building equities in, in understanding space sustainability. Well, I think that, uh, anytime you're engaging an emerging space actor um, through the standpoint of, if, like in this case, India would be the emerged and the established space actor, and the hosted payload um, member countries would be the, the emerging. I think anytime you have interaction between those um, those groups, you certainly can export best practices, and you can uh, show them uh, certain practices that ensure space sustainability. So I think. When you have that sort of interaction, there's certainly uh, a great benefit for the purposes of space, space sustainability if the, in, the established actor is, in fact, um, practicing in a way that ensures space sustainability in the first place. Mm -hmm. It might be a little difficult to convince some of these countries that what's in it for them. Um, I, especially a lot of them, the emerging countries along the equator, and in, at least in terms of remote sensing, um, they need more specific systems that are going to look at the equator. They can't just piggyback onto countries um, that are maybe more close to the United States or Europe. So it might be you might have to tailor the the mission a little bit um, to attract them to that sort of opportunity. Well, uh, does the panel have anything? Any last words? Thank you for coming. Thank you. <laughs> yes. uh, please join me in thanking the panel for a fascinating question. Again, um, I'd like to emphasize that audio recordings from this will be at um, swfound.org as well as the paper which they presented and the executive summary. So thank you very much.